Hello and welcome to Funny Business, the best podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Lockie Bradford. And I'm Robbie Hicks. On today's episode, we have Scott Bateman, CEO at Colmio. And seriously, I reckon his, his nickname should be The Truth. Or the oh, real deal. Oh, what do you the, reckon? The real deal. Yeah. I might call it the episode that, I don't know. The real deal. Well, he is the real deal and he's one of our good dear friends, isn't he? He loves dumplings and when we caught up, well, every time we catch up, to be honest, I feel like I want to run through walls. He's just so articulate. I don't know, the way he thinks about life, like strategy, he loves it, doesn't he? And I feel like as soon as he mentioned that word, it was an interesting chat. Yeah, I just feel like it's one of those things where you get to see how he operates, how he thinks, that he's still like a human though. You know what I mean? He can converse. He's had a pretty interesting background. His pathway into what he's doing now is probably one of the most interesting journeys that we've heard on the pod. Long time coming. I feel like you're going to love it. Enjoy. Scott, thank you so much for jumping on the Funny Business Podcast. For those at home listening, tell us who are you and what do you do? Uh, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. My name is Scott Bateman. I'm the CEO of a prop tech company called Comio. Um, so essentially we're a property management platform that's trying to make the whole experience of renting a hell of a lot less shit than what it is because God knows it's been pretty rough for a lot of people. Uh, we're a Melbourne-based team, about 130 people on the team, started about three years ago. Uh, so been on the the kind of crazy startup scale-up journey ever since. Do your staff know that you're the dumpling king? Because when we went out for lunch, you were just <laughs> smacking them back like it was nobody's business. Huh? Can confirm, can dumpling, yes. <laughs> 130 staff, three years, that must be a pretty wild experience. I know that um, like being involved from some projects in, internal to what you're doing, but also from the outsiders looking in, that, that must be a, a crazy experience through COVID, uh, remote teams, all the stuff. Can we get into maybe... Uh, where Colme, the idea from Colmio actually came from? Yeah, there's there's kind of, um, so there's two stories that sort of run side by side that help Colmio make sense. The um, So about eight years ago, I got approached by a headhunter to join a real estate business. And at the time I hated real estate, hated property managers. I'd only ever had like terrible experiences and had that view that they're all just monsters and they don't care and whatever. Uh, and I kind of went, I've got no desire to do this. That is the worst sounding job offer I've ever heard in my life. And he's like, well, hey, wait till you find out who's behind it and what they're doing. And, you know, if you really think that you're capable of, of fixing something and if it's that easy to solve, put your money where your mouth is and come and join this business and fix it. Um, and it, it turned out to be owned by Paul Little, who I think, you know, anyone in the startup scene would know of through his work with Scalata and previously from Toll. Um, so I joined. And when I got there, I found it was just completely different to anything I could have imagined. Way, way harder to solve than what it looked like a bunch of really good people who cared that were just set up to fail by this system that just really wasn't working. So while while I was in that business, we we're kind of working out, well, if anything was possible, how would we fix this? And this idea became Colmio. Separately, this company had built a bit of property management software uh, that was nearing end of life. Uh, and essentially what they were doing is trying to work out how to move to cloud and you know what that next iteration of it would look like. So we kind of fused these two things. We said, well, we've got this big grand idea for this you know, industry-changing thing called Colmio, but we've also got this very functional product that's in market right now that needs to get replaced. Let's replace that product and then we'll build Colmio on top of the replacement. Sounds cool, uh, not so much. So this all sort of kicked off right at the start of the pandemic. We got given like six months notice to get people off this 15-year-old product with billions of dollars of rent moving through it because the data center it was being hosted on was being turned into a car park and the company just forgot to tell us that this is going to happen. So it's come out of this temperature controlled room, risk was it was going to go down, we'd never get it back up. 
So we're kind of saying to customers, guys, this is going to be ugly. Like it's it's going to be ugly. We are launching this thing way before it's ready. A uh, lot of risk, a lot that could go wrong. But the worst possible outcome is that you stay on what you've been on and it goes down and we can't get it back up. So as bad as it's going to be, it's still better than the alternative. So we started building out the replacement, um, really needed a huge team to do it. So we recruited, I think, 100 people in about three months right at the start of COVID. So we're in lockdowns in Melbourne, a whole bunch of people that have never met each other, building a product that we didn't understand to a launch date that we knew wasn't realistic and everything that could go wrong went wrong. Like it was just a complete and utter nightmare. Um, I think one of the things that we know from um, hanging out, Scott, is like, the pressure attached to startups, regardless of unrealistic timelines and deadlines and have to get off end of life products, like there's already a high risk and it's already a high pressure. The fact that you had all these, maybe like the guardrails that was like bowling with the bumpers up, did it help knowing that there was like, at least you couldn't do everything, you know, and you had to focus on certain stuff to make it happen. Um, It should have helped, but it didn't. So, um, you know, one of the problems that we had early is we kind of made a really interesting mistake around talent. Like we kind of looked at it and went, we want to build this incredible thing. We want it to be a great place to work and, and all the things that, you you know, just the right thing to do. And we shouldn't have done that. Like what we should have done is said, no, we need people who just want to crack out code, who have got no interest in being creative or innovative or whatever, and they can just get shit done. So we recruited the exact wrong mix of people for the problem that we needed to solve thinking that that was just the right way to build a startup and a team and a culture. Um, And what it meant was you've got people who want to be creative and want a lot of scope to innovate and and work in a real agile fashion. And then what we said was, no, don't work like that. Here's this very defined list of things. We don't want you to think. We just want you to do. And we just burnt people out and they hated it and hated us. And, you know, it was just the exact wrong mix of people for the problem. Um, So in hindsight, I think, you know, benefit of what you learn since there's a million different ways that I'd resource that than what we did um, because we thought we were doing the right thing. So the guardrails were there, but we kind of made the mistake of not seeing them for what they were and just thinking, oh, no, we're going to build this really exciting thing and everyone will love it. And it was just a, a big mistake. But now like 130 staff, like what's what's different now than three years ago for you? How do you, how do you approach it? How do you look differently at what it is that you're doing and leading a team that big? So um, we're, we're pretty fortunate now that all of the the big kind of ugly, scary stuff that we had to go through, we've gone through. So we're at a point now where we've got a whole bunch of really big customers on the platform. Increasingly, they're pretty happy with what we're building. We've got a market who's excited for what we're building. Um, and we're building on technology, which is really well understood and known and so on. As a consequence, we are now recruiting the people and, and staffed by people who were that first group that made a lot of sense. They're innovative, they're creative. You know, they bring all that brilliance to solving a problem and you just kind of let them loose and do it. Um, so we're fortunate that we're at a point now where what the business needs to be successful is the people and the culture that we wanted at the start that we probably shouldn't have gone with. Um, now we just kind of free them up and give them, you know, what are we trying to achieve? Let's be really clear about what that looks like. What's the problem that people are trying to solve and be clear about what that looks like? And then is the way that we're doing this the most commercial way? So, you know, the challenge for us, we're in a super mature market. You can't just be um, good, like it can't just have a, a good solution because there's a bunch of good solutions and no one's leaving the good solution they're on for your equally good solution when there's a whole bunch of pain and change involved in moving across. So it's got to be great and different or there's no point to doing it. And that's a, that's an interesting challenge for you know smart, creative people to solve. Hey, can we rewind back a bit and, and talk about your pathway into the world of startups? Growing up, did you think that this would be 
where you'd end up and the type of things you'd end up doing working in? No, oh, God, no. Um, I, I mean, I, so I got kicked out of home and school when I was 15. So I was homeless and sleeping on people's couches and doing all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was pumping petrol at the time. I'd got my first sort of part-time job, realized, shit, I need an income. There was a dude who used to come through and I'd fill up his car and I liked his car. So we'd chat and he's like, Hey, I'm opening a restaurant. Would you want to be a chef? I'm like, not really, but fucking need a full-time job. Let's do it. So I did an apprenticeship as a chef. I did that for about five years. Absolutely brutal, like 100 hours a week. I was 15 years old. You're earning four bucks an hour or something obscene. And it was only when the restaurant, uh, one day the restaurant went broke and all my knives and everything were locked inside that I went, shit, I can't keep doing this. Like, if this is my life, I'm I'm doomed. Um, and I needed to get a job in sales. So I went and literally picked up the phone, called this company in Chatswood. I was living in Blacktown in Sydney at the time. And I'd train like an hour and a half across Sydney to do outbound cold calling, selling hotel loyalty memberships, trying to get people just to not tell me to go and F myself when I called them every day. But it taught me to sell. And then from that, I went into retail sales. At the time, I was DJing and that was picking up. So I needed to get away from weekend work. Uh, my sister was at a, an insurance call center. So I took a job at a call center, just taking inbound insurance calls. They needed someone to run a sales team. So I did that. It went pretty well. Um, ran sales across the business. That went pretty well. Westpac wanted to build out insurance across their business. So they poached me across. They were a customer at the time. Um, that went pretty well. Moved into doing a whole bunch of stuff with wealth, a whole bunch of stuff with lending. Um, I was doing a bit of study. So at this time I was a, I was a you know 15-year-old high school dropout, um, went and did a couple of master's degrees and caught the attention of a headhunter who said, why don't you come to property? So it was like the most, you know, the likelihood that I would end up here in my mind back then was almost zero, like so unlikely. Um, but when you kind of look back on it, you go, it was almost this logical sequence of things, but it didn't seem like that at the time. Tell us about the ambition then. I mean, 15, kicked out of home, yeah. pumping gas. Like, where, what, what is it about the journey? I mean, you going on this pathway around like, fuck, no, I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to do the work. Like, what, what the, the ambition, I suppose, can you explain that? It's funny when I when I did my MBA, um, they do a lot of stuff with you on like you know getting to know yourself and and really knowing yourself. And one of my amazing professors, she said, if you describe yourself in one word, what would it be? And I said, driven. And the more we kind of pulled that apart, what we found is that I was driven, but I was driven by this intense fear of failure and this intense need to prove everyone wrong. Like I, in my mind, I, I was just going to show the world I'm better than you and, and watch me go. And it wouldn't matter how, what I had to do or how hard I had to work to do it, I would do it. And early on, that served me pretty well because it meant where others would quit things, I'd stay with it, you know, even when I probably shouldn't have. Um, it opened up promotions, you know, you build a bunch of resilience and all that's really cool. What I found as I did my study is that increasingly I lost that fear of failure because I, I became more comfortable in myself and you know, made better decisions about what was there for me. But for this, this kind of weird period of time, I wasn't as effective. So all that urgency, all of that drive had subsided as I kind of went, actually, no, life's going to be fine. I don't need to prove the world wrong. I need to make better decisions around, you know, what I actually want in my life rather than, you know, running away from something that I'm scared of. Um, and it forced me to make a whole bunch of change that actually worked against me early. And then as, as we kind of came into, um, you know, the Colmio story and everything else, all of a sudden that urgency and everything creeps back in and you've got that drive again and you've got that, that you know, just relentlessness again. So it's amazing you can draw on it as an old kind of capability, even though for a long time it was the only thing that got me through. 
What about as a as a young kid working as as a chef? You always talk about this, Locke. Like you've been working in kitchens around them. You understand the process of like being a chef's hard work. What do you think that taught you from a uh, turning up, doing lots of hours, and I guess work ethic point of view? Um, it's it's fascinating. Like I most of the big lessons in my life came from the, that like four and a half five years that I was in commercial kitchens, and it stayed with me ever since. There's this really interesting thing that happens in a kitchen where um, the whole thing is this high-functioning system and it seems brutal and it is brutal, but you actually miss it. Like years later, you miss the adrenaline of service because you're in this high-performing team where when it works well, it just clicks and it's energising and there's heaps of communication and, you know, you get to the end of end of service and you kind of sit back going, shit, that was really cool. Like the adrenaline subsides because you go at this manic pace. So I think it helps teach you a lot about planning, about resilience, about communication, about adaptability, and all of that stuff serves you no matter what business you're in. You've also got to be careful, though, that um, like when I left cooking, I still had that kind of militaristic style of leadership where I'm like, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. You need to do that thing. And that's exactly what needs to happen in a kitchen for it to work well. There's no place for democracy in a kitchen in a business that's the worst possible leadership style. So it was it was fascinating how quickly you got to drop all of that stuff but try and hold on to the good that comes with your time there. What about taking on new things? I feel like we look at your career over time, it just, it's up, up, up or different branch to side, like taking on new challenges and, and putting yourself out there. I just think that's fucking crazy and like mad respect for for you. You know what I mean? Like it's not just, you can sit there and just sort of coast. It's like you always seem to push yourself. Oh, I don't know what it is. I, I, I had a boss once who said there's a curse. What did she say? The, the, the curse the curse of the high performer is perpetual dissatisfaction. And it's so true. Like, um, and my wife is exactly the same. Like, you can do a thing and as soon as it stops being really hard, you stop being really interested. And, and that's the problem. Like, you almost need it to suck a little bit and be hard and you know, be frustrating and stressful or, you know, you eventually just go, this is a bit too vanilla. Uh, I'm bored. Someone else can do this. And I think that's that's a blessing and a curse. Like she was absolutely spot on. There's parts of it that mean, you know, when someone looks at your CV, it looks, you know, really progressive and lots and lots of change and, and promotions and all that stuff. But the problem is you are not long in a role before you start saying, I'm bored with this, what's next? Um, and that can be, you know, good and bad as well. What about a background having that um, trained as a chef, does that mean to put the pressure on at home when you're cooking shit meals? Like, if you, <laughs> if you put something on the table that's like not up to scratch, you're like, oh, this is a bit average today. Like, do you hold yourself to the same standards at home when you're cooking? I'm actually not a great chef. It's, it's funny, like, everyone, everyone said when they hear that, they're like, oh, you know, this must be a really good cook. I'm really not. Like, my wife is a thousand times better in a kitchen than me for a single meal. The difference is I could do it for a thousand people with my eyes shut, where for her, that would be, you know, her worst nightmare. So I was like, you know, intense speed and all those things that make a good commercial kitchen work. But meal for meal, I reckon 80% of people could make a better single meal than what I can. So, yeah, it's just like knowing where you're good and knowing where you're not. You'd take control of the kitchen in, in jail, wouldn't you? Because normally you get them jobs and you're like, hey, I'll, I'll run that list. 5,000 inmates. I've got the sloppy joes. No, oh, that's that's going to be my jail survival skill. It's like, guys, eat, don't shank. You want to eat? Hundred percent. You don't piss off the person who's making your food. Yeah, I mean, that's a rule. That's yeah. a rule. Huh? Hey, let's get. Let's talk about uh, passion for music. You know, you, you mentioned some stuff about doing some DJ and like well, you've got your own uh, little set set up at your house, don't you? It's like a proper basement style. Rave yeah, den, yeah you know? rave cave. 
Yeah, yeah, she's good fun. Well, I think, like, I mean, I, I started DJing when I was, uh, actually, I was still 15, I think, and I went to this rave with a mate who was just, a, the, like, the naughtiest dude you'd ever imagine, and his cousin was DJing. He goes, you want to go to this rave? I'm like, what's a rave? Because this is, you know, early, uh, mid-90s, not really a thing that I, I was aware of, and I just loved it. I remember the first time I walked in, my mind was blown. I'm like, what is this music? What is this thing? This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I started saving so I could buy some decks, which I got maybe 12 months later. Um, started DJing, started meeting a whole bunch of people, playing raves and clubs and big festivals and then running a whole bunch of club nights around Melbourne. Uh, so we had an absolute ball. And it means as you get older, even though, you you, you know, I don't want to be at Rebs on a Sunday morning anymore, there's still that desire to hang out with your mates and grab a bunch of records and, you know, empty a couple of bottles of, you know, awesome wine while you mix tunes. So when we bought the house that we're in at the moment, we had this space underneath that we converted into this, and uh, kind of part studio, part miniature nightclub. And it's just a lot of fun when you got mates over. I love that. You got a nice little wine collection there too, don't you? I'm at, yeah, I am don't don't mind the bottle. <laughs> You're a big wino. What's your favorite drop? Uh look, I'm like a big old cab sav day in, day out. Like you, you want something that's really bold and expressive and you can just sit there and think about cab sav all day. I reckon Bateman wines, I reckon. Surely that has to happen. You know how to talk about it. You know what I mean? It's you know just to... got that vocab. Yeah. Oh, I love know. it. Well, let's get into a bit of the, the sales. You mentioned before uh, learning about picking up the phone and having people tell you to fuck off. Yeah. Uh, Cold calling's hard, yeah. Yeah, there's a, oh, there's yeah. a bunch of people have had on the pod who it seems like that seems like a common trait of people who have put themselves out there. They've done something a role similar to that at some point in their Door life. Knocking. where they've. Did you do that? You done meds, didn't you? you I've done retail. I've done retail sales. I worked yeah. EB Games, bro. Fucking shaking hands, with nerds selling video games. Don't stress. <laughs> but um, let's get into that for you, Scott. Like, how was that experience? What did you think it it taught you? And um, what are your thoughts around sales? It was honestly the best thing I could have done. Like hands down, the best thing I could have done because, um, like when I started it. I was desperate for another job because all I'd done is cooking and I was like, no, 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 I can't go back to cooking. I've got to find something to move on. Um, and this is pre the world of Seek and stuff like that. Like you get a newspaper and, and find a job. Um, and because, again, I was desperate and I needed something, it gave me the urge just to go and do it. But, man, I was, I was selling this membership for a core hotels for like 250 bucks, and I would call 100 people a day to get one sale. And I had to get one sale to earn enough to pay my rent. So no matter how you felt about picking up the phone and making that next call, you did it. And it's like a it's like a callus. Like the more you do it, the more comfortable that you get that no doesn't matter. Like you get off the call, you go to the next call, leave it be. That was that was their day. That's their their choice. It's cool. The next person may want it. And you've just got to avoid, you know, taking that rejection personally and be clear that the next person might want this thing. And as long as I get that, I'm good to go. You learn a lot about how to refine a message and the way that you communicate with people. Um, that confidence building, I think, is really important. Uh, and it, it made all the difference for me. Like when I first moved to Melbourne, I wanted to get into selling like home theatre equipment because I was just a bit of an AV nerd. And because I'd done the cold calling, I literally got a Yellow Pages and I rang every single store that I wanted to work for one by one and said, hey, this is who I am. Uh, this is my background capability with sales. I'd love to come and work with you. And a guy in Richmond that was running what was the Better Electrical actually said to me, you know what, there's no jobs. I can't believe you called me to do this. Come in and see me and I'll give you a job. So, you know, I went and just created a job purely because I've been doing the outbound cold calling, learning how to do it. Oh, brother, that's so sick. That that reminds me, uh, I got a, my dream job at Greg Chapel Cricket Centre when I was like 15. <laughs> and for school placement, uh, that was my first ever job. But the only reason they gave me the job was because I called myself and didn't get the school supervisor to do it like everyone else did. And I think like 
that that was an important lesson for me. It's like if I if you want to do something, you just got to fucking do it, don't you? You got to put yourself out there, and like everything's uncomfortable, isn't it? How many new things and well, it's not it's not a, it's not an email. You know yeah. what I mean? I think that I, a lot of the people that we talk to, maybe the younger generation coming through, the idea of picking up a yellow pages and scrolling through and cold calling people in that way to think about themselves is like maybe it's not first first responsible like natural for them to feel like that but that's how the world works you know like people want to see a human element i feel like one of the things that really stands out with you is like you're a people you're like you're a person people's person like you're human and i think that that's a it's a hard skill to have you know i mean like to to move between industries and do all the things that you've done you have to really be able to understand people to work as a team you mentioned high performing teams in the kitchen and now doing this fucking scale up that's winning all these innovative awards and all that sort of stuff but for me the common thing that's connected together all the stuff here from you is is people what are your thoughts on that i agree i think like i i love people um and because i sort of i mean i I sort of came from nothing i started with nothing um i've been really fortunate that a lot of really good people have taken an interest in me that's the only reason i'm successful like great people at some point have backed you or given you a chance and I feel like you owe it to others to do the same if someone has done that for you. Like, don't just sit at the top of the hill and, you know, just shower the world with your glory. Like, go and help people. Introduce them to people. Give them a chance. Have a coffee, whatever it might be. I think you've got to have that interest in seeing others do well. Um, and if that's sincere, I think that comes across. Like, people get that. Um, I think the other thing with, like, you know, outreach and reaching out to people, those, you got to understand just how many times a day people get hit up for things. Like I reckon I would have maybe 10 emails, phone calls, messages on LinkedIn from different groups trying to sell different things. And when you're trying to build your own business, like that's a very difficult thing to get to all 10. So don't be surprised if you get a no at first, but just hang in there, you know, keep trying to build that relationship with someone. Um, Don't be a pest, but be persistent. And over time, you'll probably find an opportunity presents itself, but it's it's often not there at the first go. I love that, brother. I love that. And I look back now and like the outreach even years ago when we were doing OBs and stuff and the way it's changed, it's like you just learn how to do it by actually doing it, you know? And it's like yeah. I didn't realise like you got to provide a little bit of value before you start asking for stuff. When I was like 23, 24, it was like, hey, can you help us with this? Can you do this? It's like, who are you? Why would I? Like, you know what I mean? I want to be nice and help people, but it's like, I don't, I, why would I? So it's I a think bit, yeah. you talk about this the same too because we have in the nice way, like the way if we're going back to like a, you play front of house for the podcast, you know, you work on the community, you deal with all the people that's income and requests for the pod or suggestions for the pod. And that's also a tricky thing for you to navigate of people who mm. inbound of being nice, but you don't want to piss people off. Yeah. hundred percent. Cause we're so public facing. We've got a podcast. It's like, it just, it's hard. It's, you're exactly right. Just because it's no now doesn't mean it's no forever, you know? And it's like, yeah. just because it's like, no, we can't do this. It doesn't mean I'm not interested in what you're doing. Or I want to encourage you, you know? And it's like, balancing that i think comms is so important eh? i totally totally agree i think it's a it's something that a lot of people miss um and in you know many cases like you look at where where startups often fail it's not that they're not building a good or interesting product it's that you've got to get people to get to take that product and buy it and give you money for it and so on so it's that next step around sales that lets a lot of people down because that does take the work of going out and being vulnerable and saying hey here's my thing here's why i think you should try it there's parts of it that probably aren't great, but you know, there's parts of it that are brilliant and we'll make it great, but we just need you to come with us on the journey. Like that's a that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, you mentioned there's been a few people that have um helped you along your way and given you a shout out. Um, can you name who they are and, and what they've done to help you? I won't I won't name names because the problem with something like this is 
um, for anyone who gets missed, you've got that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I've let people down. I think the um, the thing for me is that, like, at, at different kind of moments between different things, someone has done something they didn't need to do, and it's like if I'm if someone's your boss, right? Like they've got a basic set of things they should probably be doing. I should probably be coaching you. I should probably be giving you feedback, all that kind of stuff. It's the times when someone takes a punt on you. Um, backing you with their own integrity and personal brand and, and you know, sort of currency within a business. And there's been a few times where bosses have done that, where they've actually said, hey, give this guy a shot. I back him. So if you if you kind of rate my opinion on things, I back this guy, give him a go. And it means someone else then takes the leap, not because they know you or trust you, but because they trust the person who advocated for you. Um, separately, I've had bosses that started the investment in my study, which totally changed my career trajectory. Like, you know, anyone who ever says don't do an MBA or whatever, I think is just a goose. Like it was the smartest thing I could ever have done. I could never have done it were it not for my boss at the time putting me up for it. Uh, and then when I got to work for Paul Little and Little Group, you know, that became, you know, the study at Harvard and everything else because he's like, hey, if you want to run this incredible thing, this is the best business school in the world. Why don't you go and have a crack? So it's it's each time someone having a go. What was that like? Talk us through um, like Harvard, bro. It looks good. I'm looking at your... LinkedIn profile right now, and I'm clicking that. Like, it looks Hello. nice. It does look nice Hello, in the profile, brother. But you know, it, it's interesting. Like I had this horrible imposter syndrome when I got to my MBA because you're with all these super smart people, and I was a, a high school dropout. And you learn about imposter syndrome, you get over it, and then it comes back thick and fast as soon as you go back over to a program like that. And it didn't like I was the youngest person in the world to get into this program, so I'm sitting there. I was 36 when I got accepted. The average age is 55, so, and they're you know four-star generals and they're a fleet commander of the Australian Navy. You've got all these incredibly impressive people in this room. I'm like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I run this little property management business, but I want to start a tech company. <laughs> like you, you look about this big and feel about this big. So it's it's confronting. You've got to be um, comfortable being vulnerable for a long time. It was savage. Like it's 16 hours a day, six days a week for two months. Like it's just relentless. The workload is unlike anything I've ever seen. That's but it's life Hang on, how do you, how do you fucking do classes or doing assessments or doing things? It's like the, the Harvard method is case studies. So you are getting hundreds of case studies, and every day you're in several of these sessions, which means this 20 page document you've got to have fully read, assessed, and analyzed. You work through that with your living group. So you put in this group of eight people that you live with from some all over the world. You've got to discuss and debate the case and form a view of what you think. You come into the class that goes for a couple of hours where I think 80 of you interrogate this, this thing. And then you do a debrief with the living group at the end of the day as well. That's for every single one of these. And you do hundreds in between all of that. You've got guest talks and guest lectures and, you know, they're just loading you up with as much stuff as they can give you to give this um, kind of global perspective and kind of shape the way that you make decisions, gather information, think about opportunities. Um, just a, an extraordinary process, but it's, it's a lot like it's, the hardest thing I've ever done. Were there any big standouts about like maybe you had different misconceptions or thoughts on something that your mind changed on so many. or your eyes were opened on? Oh man, so every every case that happens. Um, because what what happens is, and it, it's kind of genius the way they do it. At the start of a case, they force you to take a position. I agree with a thing or I disagree with the thing. And what's interesting is in your class, there's 80 of you. So there's 160 in the program, they split it into two groups. And half the room will violently agree that a thing is the right thing to do. And half the room will violently disagree. And every one of them is smart, capable people running the biggest companies in the world. And you sit back and go, 
oh shit, like this this is clearly far more complex than I could ever have imagined. Um, and there were things like there was a case study that just blew my mind because I, um, you know, my kind of uh, area of focus in my my studies were strategy. I'm like, I'm pretty good at strategy. You know, I'm, I'm a bit full of myself. And I'm sitting in this class and they do the, the class on Colgate versus P&G. And you watch, um, you watch yourself make the same dumb decisions that Colgate and P&G made that destroyed billions of dollars in potential value because these two idiot companies went head to head and basically convinced the market that teeth whitening products don't work because all they did was bag each other's product. And it was this notion of when to build a market and when to fight over the market that's there. So build the biggest pie, then worry about who gets what slice rather than just looking at a, a pie and going, well, that's the slice that I want. And I'm sitting there feeling so fucking stupid going, fuck, like, really? I've I've just made exactly the same dumb set of decisions that these idiots made because I've gone straight into compete mode. Uh, and you do that hundreds of times across hundreds of cases. Like, it forces you to rethink all of the ways you make decisions. And a lot of it, you know, will come from biases and all that sort of stuff that they're trying to help you understand. You mentioned there's a few people in there from like a military background. We're keen to get into maybe how their thought process was different and maybe like strategically, what what was it like spending time with people like that in the in that environment? Oh, they're they're just like the most fascinating people. I mean, one of one of the guys um, that I was chatting with, he's got like five degrees, three or four, I think, a masters. He runs a thirteen thousand person organization with a multi billion dollar budget, and you're like. Dude, in any other day, this is like a you know front page AFR CEO of an ASX business. But because it's military, we just kind of forget that these incredibly complex organizations not only have to do the things that businesses do, but they've got to do it in what will ultimately be a life or death situation. Like it is all around how you kind of prosecute what a military is there to do. So they are incredibly considered people. They are unbelievably smart. They have this intense focus on culture. Um, you know, you learn a lot about um, from Marines. They talk about this notion of commander's intent, which is like, how do you free up a team to go and prosecute, you know, the, the thing that they're there to do, but the battlefield changes and the information changes and you're not there to sit there with them. So they've got all this latitude to make decisions as long as they're clear on what is the mission objective and what is the commander's intent. And I love that. I think there's so much in that for teams where it's like give people space, but give them a framework where they know how to make decisions within that space because they're clear on, you know, crystal clear. What's the objective and what would my, my leader's intent be in this situation? Mate, keen to get into, you just uh, coined a piece around AI and the future of tech trends. Keen to get into a little bit of that and, and, and where your thoughts on the whole like tech industry is going. It feels like um, a bit like us, you're a non-technical dude that's in a in a technical environment, keen to get you in. Weren't sure then. It was like you're a non-technical. No, no. <laughs> I can. Say, well, you're not out there. You're not speak out of turn. Speak out of turn. <laughs> Covered himself. Hey, you're not. I, you're not cutting code. Let's let's be real. We're not cutting code. We're cutting code. Let's get into some of the stuff. Where do you think it's going? How do you think it's going to change? What are you excited about? All that's good stuff. Oh, it, like this is this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. Like there's so much really incredible change coming our way, in part because of what we've just seen with generative AI. Like I think everyone's getting all frothy about chat GPT and, and that stuff. It's that's cool. Um, and it's you know, it's it's interesting. I think the thing that we're missing is that all business is ultimately an expression of these these kind of two things. What is my willingness to sell a solution, a thing, and what is someone else's willingness to buy that thing? 
And typically these two things need to meet. I need to be able to make a little bit of profit doing it or I don't want to go into the business. And someone needs to get enough value from it that they can justify the price. Things like AI allow us to completely reimagine that equation because the cost to do a thing is now so unbelievably low. I can produce content at almost zero cost. Um, you know, I've just come back from a, um, a retreat in Bali where I was talking about the case study of Ant Financial, which is this mind-blowing Chinese financial services business. 1.3 billion customers with 15,000 employees. So that is a 1 to 80,000 ratio. If you look at an Australian bank, that ratio is 1 to 50. So 1 to 80,000 versus 1 to 50. And the key thing that's different is this incredible AI data structure that sits at the heart of that business. So from my point of view, this is all cool, but it's not the generative piece. It's the, how do we do business faster with lower risk, at lower cost? We can experiment at zero cost. All of these things are coming on the back of some of the change that we're seeing. The separate kind of big mega trend that we built Comio around sort of four years ago was that we're in an age of anticipatory service. So business is going to be won or lost on how you anticipate your customer needs. And we use the examples of... Um, you know, the Netflix algorithm looks at what you watch and says, we think you'd like these things because of this. Your Google Gmail will look at what emails you haven't read and say, why don't we unsubscribe you? Your phone says, I can see you've parked your car. Why don't I place a pin? Your internet banking app says, it looks like you're in an airport. You're probably traveling overseas. Why don't you give us a heads up so we can make some changes? So we're getting kind of surrounded by all of this cool tech that increasingly thinks about what we need before we even know that we need it. And I would argue that this is the next big frontier in both technology and service delivery. Uh, and for us anyway, like that's that's where we see things becoming super exciting because it's all just like, how do we make shit just way better for you? How do you carve out the thinking time, the strategy time to like all this sort of stuff's coming through, consuming content, thinking about like your own strategy for Colmeo and, and how you want to build it? How do you do that? Do you have the big chair in the office where you just put the blinds <laughs> down and say, hey, put the blinds give down. me two hours. Turn the photos around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> man, if, if only. No. <laughs> oh, God, what I would give for that. No, I think, you know, um, one of the things, this sounds really silly, but one of, the, one of the best tools is actually Twitter because if you are really clear on um, some of the hashtags, as in like literally the index of the topic, you can very quickly find that Twitter can create a uh, curate a feed for you every day of just the most incredible things from the really smartest, you know, smart people doing really cool things. If you get that right, you've only got to give this a few minutes each day across a few key topics and you can stay pretty well informed. Um, and then I'd complement that with, you know, audio books and podcasts and stuff like that if I'm in the car or walking the dog or whatever it might be. So you can quickly find about an hour a day spread across different things to just stay in touch. The, the challenge is how do I make the best use of that hour? How do I get five hours of value for an hour worth of effort? And I think this is where Twitter and just being able to dive into things piece by piece is really helpful. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm a massive oh, Twitter fiend. I feel like it's from a news and, and like staying up to date with the trends that you want to see. For me, like I look at a lot of stuff like global, global politics, tech stuff, and like the algorithm for me feeds me the stuff that I want to see a little bit. Yeah. And I substitute with other 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 news sources. Rick and Morty memes. <laughs> other news sources. I keep up to date. I scroll through other stuff. But again, like I don't feel like when there's big news or breaking news or breaking tech stuff, I don't feel like I am have to do hours of stuff to keep up to date. On a regular basis, I've got my cadence in now that I can at least know when a big story or something that I should be aware of is happening, you know? I agree. And you'll find like you're building, without realizing it, you're building a mental model where as you get new information, you're looking at that information really differently because of what you already know across other um, you know, areas or aspects. 
So the more that you do of it, the easier it gets and the more efficient you become at doing it. It's kind of like like exercise, I guess. Hey, let's get into um, COVID versus no COVID. You started in the middle of a pandemic, scaled to the crazy thing, had this crazy deadlines, and now life looks very different. How does how does you as a leader of Colmio approach it? What's changed for you? And what are you excited about now that it's sort of in the rearview mirror? Um, that's, an, that's an awesome question. So we... The biggest kind of thing for us is um, how do we kind of get the balance right between the team being in person and giving people the flexibility to be remote? Like that's, I think, a big issue everyone's wrestling with. Um, I'm a huge, huge advocate for flexible working and trying to help people just balance living because we know it's really challenging with the work that needs to be done. What we know to be true, though, is that collaboration is not as effective when you're on Zooms or on Teams or whatever as when you're actually with people face-to-face. All of the the social currency and the trust and everything that you build in a business, it rarely happens at the start of a Zoom meeting or the start of a Teams meeting, and it often happens in the hallways of an organization. You know, you walk past each other and it's some, you know, bit by bit, a little bit of small talk or whatever, or it's at the start of the meeting as you're kind of sitting and chatting or at the end of the meeting when you're sitting and chatting. So there's all of this stuff that helps you do things more successfully and more effectively that you don't get on Zoom. But what we see is that um, these things aren't always obvious when they're not there. So people would argue, hey, we built a platform during COVID and lockdowns. Why would we need to be in the office? We've proven we can do it without it. And we say, we agree, we did it, but it's not optimal. Like if we really step back and ask, what is what is like a weapons grade version of Colmio look like as a company and a culture? It's not everyone on Zoom. And there's a, there's a guy on Twitter, I've forgotten who he was, but he, he drew a really interesting example where he said, Think about a new competitor spinning up. And if you hear that they're all working on Zoom, or if you hear this team is in a garage together five days a week sitting together, who are you more worried about? And it was a really interesting way to step back and go, you know what, I'm far more concerned about that group that is in that garage together than the five people dialing into Zoom. So the biggest shift for us, getting that balance right as we come back to a bit more of a normal kind of reality. Yeah, man, I feel like we're on the same page. I feel like it was like pre, pre-COVID pre or as COVID happened, it was like the swing of who had the power balance, I guess, of, from an employee-employer perspective. And now there's been a lot of changes, which I think goes hand in hand with AI and stuff and how companies might be thinking of it. There's been the wave of redundancies in tech, but also the expectation that things can now be done with all these other things if we plug them in together or where it might go in the next 12, 24 months as they get better and better and now new stuff's out there that, for us, if you're not in meeting people and we, we make a point every Wednesday, like it's not all the time, but for us, we're locked in our schedule that we try and meet as many people face-to-face as we can on our Wednesdays. We're doing our stuff. Me and Locke work face-to-face with each other every single day. But again, it's not for, for all the companies that we've sort of worked with or done stuff with. It's a challenge that everyone's facing now at the moment of maybe like expectations of what people could ask for a few years ago versus what they can get now and from a cultural perspective i agree 100 like there has to be some tangible touch and feel if you're not like if if you're not atlassian i get the atlassians and all the other stuff but again it's like if your company's not atlassian you can't compare yourself to that you know what i mean like you can't have the same rules and it's like you can't have rules for them and then you try and make it the same for you it doesn't make sense like you're i have a bit of self-awareness of who you're like who you are what your company's doing and like 
I don't know. I think it's a challenge. It's not going to go away. You lock got some free likes and um, comments the other day when Jeff yeah. Pennant put out a. I didn't even really have an opinion. I just said this is the dumbest shit I've ever read, and people love oh, it. They? they like a they like a platform to vent, don't they? It's good. People just wanted to say, yeah, it's bad. But uh, yeah. I do think a lot of people are fearful that they that I know from, from like you mentioned, life's hard. If you're juggling stuff now and you are working in tech and you don't, if you got a role that doesn't mean that you have to be in the office, but in some companies, not everyone has the luxury of doing that. So it's like, so is every, it rules for one? Is it rules for others? Everyone's like, got different motivations, don't they? Why they work and and what they're why they're doing it. You know, like, so and true. especially that the bigger the team it is, the harder it is to manage, isn't it? So true. I think like there's a there's a um, a really interesting framework that I you know I think about daily, which is in strategy, like in any business, you have got three strategies that need to prove true. There is a strategy first and foremost for the customer that you serve. So what do we do that solves their problems? How is it different to their other options, et cetera? There's a strategy for the team. So what is the right type of talent and the right type of culture? And you heard me say at the start, we got that wrong when we first started. So good now, but got it wrong at the start. And then the third is your strategy around capital. So who am I going to take money from? How much do I need? What are they looking for or expecting in return? And in every decision you make, you've got to think about it through this lens of I have $1 and I've got to decide how to commit that dollar across those three things. Do I double down on a commitment in some way, shape or form for customers? Do I in some way direct it to my team or accept inefficiency or whatever in my team? Or in some way, do I sharpen my appeal to the investor by you know uh, moving to cash flow positive more quickly or whatever it may be, or paying bigger dividends, whatever it might be? In all of this, people kind of make the mistake of thinking that this is this binary thing of, am I doing the right thing for the team or not? It's like, it's not that simple. Am I doing a thing which aligns with the customer need, with the team need, or with the investor need? And if I'm accepting a suboptimal business to make the team happy, that is my answer. If I'm wanting to get a really optimal business either for the customer or the investor, I've got to accept that at times, that's not going to be what the team wants to see or hear. The problem that sits around this is that through COVID, there was so much capital flying around that we've had this period of um, business plans that shouldn't have been invested in getting backed. People could be far more generous. We know there was a talent shortage. So this kind of like incredible era has arrived for people in tech over the last couple of years that was highly abnormal. And now we're trying to normalize some of that. And people are going, well, fuck, this feels ugly compared to what I had. Now I'm a bit more nervous about my job. Now I'm being told I've got to come into the office. You know, now I'm being told that I think Atlassian and, and Canva and these groups that we hold in very high esteem for the right reasons are actually laying off talent. And it's a it's a different world. It's a it's a crazy shift. Mate, uh question we ask all our guests in the pod is a bit of a mental health one. Uh what do you turn to when you look to get some energy back in your life? Um I, look, I I'm a, I'm pretty fortunate and I don't have kids or anything like that. So life at home is in really good shape. I've got an awesome supportive wife who I love hanging out with. Uh, so wherever I can, I get a bit of time with her. My my brother is like my best mate in the world. He lives literally 200 metres away. So it's just a lot of time just mucking around being dickheads. Uh, and then it's just time with my dog. Like it's the stupidest thing that, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes walking my 55 kilo Rottweiler in the morning is amazing for decompressing and thinking and um, just getting a bit of exercise in as well. I was going to mention your dog there because I was seeing all over Instagram. You've got an amazing backyard. Like what you've done with your house is crazy. I was just telling Rob, you've got like a tree coming out of the fucking deck. Like yeah, that's crazy. Pretty, pretty neat, <laughs> that's crazy. But how important is like a nice space and and or like especially when you fucking live spend so much time there. You know what I mean? Like I think like environments are important. You know, we talk about this all the time. We want to always want to, we always think about like leveling up 
where we are and and just being around. Spent a lot of time, especially when you work from home. You spent yeah. a lot of time, otherwise, yeah. like prison. Yeah, I want to see the records that I like. You know, so <laughs> it makes me smile. You know? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. In fact, that's my only regret is that um, my studio is under the house where it's very dark. So it's awesome to sit with the records all day, but not so great when you actually, you know, want a bit of natural light like we've got up here. You come out like a vampire. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. What's that? The Ben Waters movie. Oh, he's downstairs again. He's downstairs. <laughs> he's in the rave cave. He's got the glow sticks, the snap pants, the pure. I love it. PhD? Pure hard dance. Did you get into that stuff back in the day? I, man, would you believe I did? Like, yeah, embarrassed to say I did. Not not all the fat pants and all the glow sticks. I was never quite that far, but, you know, I was at, you know, back in the day, hard candy and bubble and all that kind of yeah, nonsense yeah, yeah. that was going on, but the good old rave days. <laughs> oh, that's great. Rob used to be, get into Damani Dada and the Wu-Tang Clan oh, sort of I stuff. Listen. You yeah. actually wore that. Yeah, I actually did. I rocked that stuff. It's funny when you look back and go through... Fuck, I really did wear all that stuff. The photos oh, yeah. of you as a kid, Locke as a kid in, in Jakarta Brody with yeah. his big data Wu-Tang pants on. I was a gangster when <laughs> I was 11. Spiky hair yeah. and he's down in there with his spiky Down neck face. Oh, like, please don't rob me. pretty hard. Oh, whatever. I'd be rude not to get a bit of a thoughts on current state of the property market while we've got you too. Yeah. For people who might be interested, where do you think it's at? Oh, look, there's there's two sides. There's the, the you know, buy-sell market and there's the rental market. Both are in a pretty shitty spot. I think, um, you know, interest rates is kind of the obvious driver of the problem with if you want to sell your current property, um, the timing's pretty rough. So we're seeing things start to improve, but for a while it's been pretty rough. If you're trying to get into property, we know it's a mess. Rental properties, like we're living in this extraordinary shit show at the moment in terms of trying to help people get homes and stay in homes. Um, and it is literally a perfect storm. And in large part, because we've just seen no investment from the government in community housing and social housing for the last few years, which means we're relying on the private landlord market to do all of the, the heavy lifting around social housing. And we know that is a recipe for disaster because that's not why private landlords bought those properties. Um, so you've got this kind of tension now between landlords saying, hey, you know, it's costing me a fortune to have this property because of interest rates and, and renters saying, but I can't afford to pay this extra, you know, 30% that you've just hit me with. Um, so it is an absolute mess. I don't know that the rental market has a clear, easy solution outside of, um, you know, I think there's a bit of change in terms of um, rent increases that they're exploring at the moment. Um, supply has got to change. Investment in community housing has got to change. But then we've got enormous amounts of immigration and we can't stop immigration because we know we lack the skills that we need for the labour force, which is driving inflation as well. So perfect storm. Like it's it's very, very tense. Um, I'm hoping over the next sort of 12 months or so as interest rates start to level out, which is not, you know, it's not financial advice, but it's what we expect, um, that some of this starts to taper down a little bit. But I, I, you know, I think we're in for a bumpy few years, to put it mildly. There's no, there's no easy solution anywhere soon. <laughs> right, hey, Sorry to be so there, morbid. Though? What's on the nightstand? What are you reading? What are you watching when you're looking to just chill out, veg out on the couch? What's, uh, what's on Netflix? Oh man, what is on Netflix? Um, oh, I'm, you know, I'm loving The Bear. Season two's just come out. It is right. the only thing I've watched that actually takes me back to the kitchen and gives me like fond memories of my time because it's the most accurate thing I've ever seen. And and you're nodding. You'd be the same mate from your time in kitchen. Oh, honestly, it's, so... it's one of my favorite TV shows. I reckon. Yeah, the new season just come out or or whatever season two. But that's Maddie Matheson's in it. And stuff. Ah, is yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Gold. Gold. The other thing I'm reading at the moment, actually, which is an awesome book for those that are interested, is The Cold Start Problem. So it's from the team that um, scaled Uber, and they're talking about the way different platforms get growing, and they sort of draw on Tinder and Instagram, and some of it is just fascinating. So 
if you're looking to build something and kind of not quite sure how to get those first few, um, you know, sort of steps going, it explores a whole bunch of different ways that you can do that. So um, cold start problem, hot tip. I like that. Well, mate, we're halfway through the year. What can we expect to see for the rest of the year? Uh, Work-wise or personally? Everything. Give us What's on for the rest of the year? What are you excited about? Uh, I think like for me anyway, like the next six months for us is the most exciting with uh, the Colmio story because it's been so tough to get to here, but we're now starting to do all the cool shit that we actually started the business to build. So the stuff that actually makes a difference to people renting homes, um, makes a difference so that property managers can be more available and responsive and and enjoy what they're doing. So work-wise, like, you know, four and a half years of eating veggies, we now get to have some dessert. Like that's the only way I can describe it. Um, personally, I'm going to take my first holiday in six years towards the end of the year. I've got my wife's 40th, so I'm planning a big surprise for her, which I won't talk about here. Um, but super excited to finally actually just stop for a minute for the first time in ages. That's fucking crazy, bro. Like mad respect for what you've been able to build with your career and uh, what you're doing at Colmio. I mean, hanging out and hearing your story and, and finally getting you on the pod. It's been fucking awesome. I've wrote down a note here. I just said, I love him. Oh. <laughs> which is true because i don't know we do pods and shit all the time but honestly like you're so fucking it's the only note he wrote for the whole chat <laughs> yeah. so... ambition and i love him <laughs> i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna play, you you watch i'm gonna draw a photo of you now with hearts all around it as well. oh. <laughs> Just the love's mutual. Well, well, scott thank you so much for uh jumping on if people are interested in finding out more about yourself or call me how do they find it how do they um, find out Best, best way, hit me up on LinkedIn. So um, Scott Bateman or Bateman Scotty, I think is the little little shortened version. Uh, or you can go to the Comia website and, and just reach out, get in touch. Always happy to chat. Hey, Al Bradford. What? Huh? What? What? Uh, what? Do you reckon what do you that, got? Do you reckon that you would beat Scott in a game of chess? No, I feel like I wouldn't. I don't know how to play chess. I could, Maybe checkers. Yeah? Yeah, you just, I can play that game. But uh, maybe table tennis. I just feel like anything with a bit of intellect, I feel like he's got me covered. I feel you like reckon? he's a sharp unit. Yeah. Bad. Do you reckon you could? Nah, I can't remember. I haven't played chess in ages, but I, I reckon he'd be all right. He'd be really good. Maybe we should tell him, maybe get into a bit of chess and yeah, go to the chess games. Yeah, if you haven't games. thought about this, maybe there's an opportunity for you here. I reckon. Oh, um, Like you with the UFC. Yeah, I was still a chance. Still a chance. But uh, Scotty Bateman, honestly, one of our better episodes, I'd say. Uh, I feel like people who want to make shit happen, listen to this episode. I hope you got so much... Joy out of it because I know I did. I know you did. Yeah, I reckon it's one of those ones where you, we've had a bunch of people on the pod who, not saying that anyone's pathway is harder or easier than others, but the, I think that how Scott's navigated his life to get to where what he's doing now, and you, ma- you can imagine the work ethic and the amount of hours behind doing stuff. You know, I mean, learning and doing stuff, and I feel like that's you can't you can't stop people like that you can't no you can't stop people you can't fake it and they're the they're the true ones he's the real deal hey back against the wall scott the truth bateman oh oh, yes i like it